Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. And now here's your host, John Lauk. Welcome to another edition of Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauk. Today, uh, we are at the Minnesota Historical Society in St. Paul, Minnesota, and we are visiting with Paul Stone. Paul Stone teaches at the Humphrey School at the University of Minnesota. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you very much, John. Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got to Minnesota and the sort of courses that you teach at the Humphrey School? Well, my wife and I got to Minnesota beginning in 1996 uh, when she was recruited to teach at what was then the Humphrey Institute. And um, I had just the previous year finished my doctorate at Yale in Western American history, which included uh, all of what we now think of as the Midwest as a, as a focus. And during the following year, 1997-98, I taught in the history department at the U of M uh, a course on the North American West. So it was focusing on not just the United States, but the U.S. and Canada and Mexico as well. So it was all of, of North America. And in 2000, um, I was approached by some then deans in the Humphrey School and asked to teach some courses that were related to the history of Hubert Humphrey, whom I consider to be uh, a central character of the mid-20th century and the fact that he was a Midwesterner, the fact that he was from South Dakota, had his, his political career based in Minnesota but not exclusive to Minnesota and was so representative of very important things that happened in the middle of the 20th century. And I, I wanted to be able to teach some courses that would play off the significance of Humphrey and other individuals, other persons who were from this general area, so an area that we now think of as the Midwest, which has been called different things at different times. So I developed courses both in the history department and in the Humphrey School which attempted to combine some geographical sensibility, some historical sensibility, and because the Humphrey School is a policy school, uh, an examination of policies that came out of the experience of uh, the, mid, the, the middle part of this country in the middle part of the 20th century. You mentioned, Paul, that your dissertation focused on the area of the country we think of as the Midwest. Can you tell us a little bit about your dissertation and what the focus was? Yes, yes I can, and it's, it's interesting. My dissertation ostensibly focused on a man named J. Frank Doby, James Frank Doby, whose dates were uh, 1888 to 1964. So obviously 1888 is, was the, well not obviously, 1888 is the year that the American Folklore Society was founded, 1964 being the presidential election that we all remember Lyndon Johnson and his landslide victory over Barry Goldwater. Uh, Dobie was the first native-born Texan to receive tenure at the University of Texas. And that was only in the, the late 1920s when that happened. And he was involved in the American Folklore Society, which had its headquarters uh, in New York and in Cambridge, but the principal centers were in places like Columbia, Missouri, which is where the University of Missouri is, Norman, Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma, Missoula, Montana, University of Montana there, 
Uh, and Dobie was, was very much of the opinion that these universities, so if it's the University of Texas, the University of Minnesota, University of Missouri, that they would be universities of those places, not just universities in those places. And I found that, that he, was, he was fighting a battle which continues to rage in many ways uh, with the idea that, that a number of academics have that a university is a, quote, no place. It exists independent of its surroundings, which I take to be a real kind of uh, historical and a geographical heresy. Uh, so my focus on Frank Dobie dealt with the period in the 19-teens, the World War I period in the 1920s, when this particular sensibility, uh, a, a regionalism as we would call it now, was really developing in American universities and in fact was very popular. It's been, I think sadly in the last 35, 40 years, has been very suspect. Uh, but paying attention to, in the early 20th century, paying attention to where you were in this continent was considered to be quite important and quite, uh, quite essential uh, to understanding it. And uh, that, that directly led to my, my interest in Dobie, uh, led to my interest when we moved to Minnesota in choices that you could see of, of Dobie in his wake, in the wake of a lot of other uh, scholars, not just historians, uh, of their interest in the middle part of the country, in the middle part of the century. Significantly, uh, a former director of the Minnesota Historical Society, Nina Archibald, who had done her graduate work at Minnesota in musicology, had focused on Frances Densmore, a woman who had done a lot of transcription and study of Native American, what we would now think of as folklore. Dobie was of her generation, knew her. They knew people like the composer Hector Villalobos in Brazil, who was also working on indigenous music um, during this time. When Dobie was fired from the University of Texas in the late 40s, there was a diaspora of other faculty there, which included significantly Henry Nash Smith, who left the University of Texas came to the University of Minnesota where he established the Journal of American Studies, uh, really the, the whole focus on um, an American identity which had a real appreciation for locale and had a, had a historical sensibility which grew out of that appreciation for locale. So John, that's one of the things that I have been trying to do in terms of my, my own research and my teaching. If I recall correctly, Henry Nash Smith grew very frustrated with Texas and may have also left Texas because of political pressures in the 1940s. Is that right? Oh, there's no question about it. Uh, the, 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 the simple rap is that the Board of Regents at the University of Texas in the 1940s was controlled by a, a very, tightly controlled by a very small group of oil people from Houston and they didn't have a conception of a university, as many of us would like to think of, as a center for humanistic research and, and development. And Henry Nash Smith was certainly growing um, weary of that. You have to remember, though, he is, was a Texan. He was from Dallas. Uh, he, his undergraduate work was at SMU. He did his graduate work 
in what was then an American Civilization program at Harvard, which was uh, established by Howard Mumford Jones, who had come from Michigan to Harvard. And he had worked with, in that same program was Daniel Aaron, who now, I think has just turned 104. And he was my advisor as an undergraduate when I was at Harvard. Uh, all these people knew each other, and they had, Daniel always thought of himself, in fact, his, his memoir is called uh, The Americanist. And it's hardly a chauvinistic kind of concept. It's simply one of an appreciation of, of who you are, where you've been, a particular place. Dan Aaron was born in Chicago. And he then after he, he became an orphan, he went to Los Angeles and lived with an uncle. But he always had that same thing that Howard Mumford Jones had, Henry Nash Smith had, which was a, a sensibility about the, the center of the country. You mentioned that Henry Nash Smith uh, grew up in Texas, and of course he taught in Dallas. I recall him being associated with the Southwest Review, which was one of the first organs of regionalism in the early 20th century. Am I remembering that's, that correctly? That's correct. And the editor was named McGinnis, I believe, John McGinnis. And the Southwest Review had a spin-off effect on other regional journals. There was a, another journal that was edited by a man named B.A. Bodkin, uh, who was, and that was located at various times in Norman, Oklahoma, and then also in Columbia, Missouri. And uh, I think that uh, Botkin uh, was associated with all these regionalists of the New Deal era. I think he had associations with Grant Wood and, and some of the other regionalist painters and regionalist writers. Um, I think that, uh, as you mentioned, there were spin-offs in our part of the country. The one I think of immediately is uh, Prairie Schooner in Prairie Nebraska. Right. was very consciously a regionalist journal for many years. It's much less so now, but this was part of that process. I think one of the, one of the incarnations of the journal was, was named Folk Say, F-O-L-K dash or hyphen S-A-Y. And it really had a, a kind of populist, as it was understood at the time, a populist leaning. It was uh, intended to indicate that you could, you could hear what people in a country who were directly involved in the artistic, the cultural, the political, the economic landscape aspects of that country were, were involved in, too. Mentioning Nebraska, the uh, Great Plains Study Center which was there. Fred Lepke was involved in that for such a long time. I can remember actually uh, him coming to speak at a graduate uh, concave conclave at, at Yale when I was first there. And he was really arguing for the importance of study, which seems to be self-evident, of studying Willa Cather. And uh, again, a, a, a woman whose work was very sophisticated and was very pertinent to understanding the experience of the 19th century as it moved into the 20th century and, and what that meant for a larger American context. You are listening to Heartland History. Today we are talking with Paul Stone, who teaches at the Humphrey School at the University of Minnesota, and we have been talking about the regionalist impulses of the early 20th century. Uh, Paul, 
just to uh, put it in very stark terms, why do you think so many academics are suspicious of regionalism? Well, I think there's several reasons for it. One is that in the last half century, and, and certainly since, well, let's say the death of Dobie in 64, uh, the presidential election of 68, regionalism was, was tarred with a, a supposed ignorance of, of world issues. And I think, quite honestly, a lot of it was kind of a, a misunderstanding of a Marxist uh, impulse that you couldn't understand uh, you couldn't understand what was happening of importance in a worldwide area if you looked at a given place, which is kind of ridiculous. Uh, given places, in fact, are exactly how we, they are the portal that we understand uh, history, at least as I understand it, in a humanistic standpoint. I think also that there was a sense that for the study of locales which were middle American, they were thought to be too far to the right. They were thought to be too far conservative. It was, there was a Playboy interview with John Wayne at some point in the 1960s when he, he was really remarkable. Of course, John Wayne was born in, in Iowa. And if you drive down I-35, you'll see just on the other side of Des Moines, there are big signs, Ridges of Madison County and the John Wayne birthplace. And he talked about being, when he came to uh, to Hollywood first, he was a New Dealer. In fact, he described himself as a socialist of some sort. And then like Ronald Reagan, also from Illinois, he moved to the right. And he used this comment, he said, my motto now is go west and turn right. So the, the sense of it then, of sort of the, the sensible center, became lost on a lot of academics. And they felt that if somebody was studying the West, which we can understand as being anywhere, the way T.R., Theodore Roosevelt, understood the West was the crest of the Appalachian zone. And that was a process uh, very much like what Frederick Jackson Turner, founder of the really discipline of American history, had focused on. So there was, there was that sense. Uh, so one couldn't understand, for instance, a, a J. Frank Dobie or a John Lomax or these other particular, or Alan Lomax particularly, uh, who were very much regionalists and understood and understand them in terms of something not for the right or the far right. So it was a suspicion. I frankly run into it all the time, and a lot of other people do too. It's just an assumption. There is uh, a new book out by our friend Michael Steiner entitled Regionalists on the Left, because uh, I think Michael would identify himself as leftward leaning, and he was. I mean, he's very interested in regionalism, and he was always frustrated by this attitude that you've identified that regionalists are only on the right. Well, exactly, and I think that one can make an argument that going into the mid, maybe even the late 1950s, that just to be understood as a regionalist meant that you were somewhat on the left. That's who they tended to be. Uh, and they were ones who, in many cases, like Daniel Aaron, who described himself as the quintessential uh, acolyte of FDR. So they really saw the New Deal, and they saw what was taking place, not just, just at the stroke of the pen of FDR's hand, but many people coming together to try to 
deal with the crisis that the United States was one one locale in a worldwide economic depression and in a crisis that led, of course, to the Second World War. Um, you mentioned uh, Western history being one of your interests, and of course, we share a relationship with Howard Lamar. He described the struggles to get Western history recognized at Yale, and uh, it was considered a regionalist branch of history and not very interesting. There's a, there's a very interesting story that <coughs> relates to Howard Lamar and Western history at Yale. Howard was a native of Alabama. Uh, he's from Tuskegee, and he did his undergraduate work at Emory, and then he came to Yale for his graduate work. And he uh, worked with Ralph Gabriel, who was an American historian at the time. And when Howard was seeking a topic for a doctoral dissertation, which a lot of people don't realize this, a lot of graduate students used to just go into conference with their dissertation advisor and, and say, what, what should I be looking at? And in many cases, it was what he or, in many cases, it wasn't a sheet at that time. Thankfully, that's changed that much. We just tell them what to do. Gabriel had this remarkable comment, which I remember Howard saying. He said, Lamar, young man from the South, educated in the East, go West. And he said, a wonderful topic would be the, transfer, the transformation of the Dakota Territory into the states of North Dakota and South Dakota. How is it that this one big territory, which is right there, which splits the 100th meridian, uh, comes into these come into two states into the Union in 1889. And Lamar described his adventure then of getting on these series of buses and, and going out to the Dakotas and the work that he did. That book has now been back in print again, the Dakota Territory, uh, for, uh, well, at least the last 15 years. Uh, I know that. His argument at Yale was that this was a Western story that Turner had said was the foundation that if, if we explained the United States, we didn't explain it just from the Civil War, we didn't explain it just from the American Revolution or from racial issues arising out of slavery, but we had to look at the Western experience, which is, is also interesting and kind of tender. When you look at the presidential election in 1860, you've got Lincoln, who is not an abolitionist, but he's against the expansion of slavery. You've got uh, Stephen A. Douglas, who just sort of doesn't care about slavery. If slavery, he cares about the West. If slavery ended the next day, that's fine. If slavery went on for another 3,000 years, that was fine to him. Lamar thought that it was much more sophisticated. He was lucky in that there were the Beinecke brothers who were collectors. They, were, they had started the S&H Green Stamp Company, and they were collectors of everything Lewis and Clark and they wanted to make a major gift to Yale, which was going to be what became Beinecke Library, it was the rare books and manuscripts collection. And they just happened to have, as did many other people, a lot of material that focused on the American West, as we would now understand it, so the Trans-Mississippi West. In fact, John, the, the, the largest collection related to a state that's at Beinecke Library is Kansas which again, I tend to think of as a Western state, and I also tend to think of it as the state where the Civil War really starts. It starts in 1856. It's an argument that I make in the same way that I make 
the argument that the Civil War actually ends in 1876 in Montana with the Battle of Little Bighorn. So this was all material that Lamar was able to articulate it. There were, there were presidents, deans, other members of the faculty at Yale at the time that thought, this is a good idea. We could become a major center for the study of this, of this field. You mentioned uh, Dobie and the creation of the American Folklore Society. What was it about this early 20th century era, the 20s and 30s in particular, that caused people to heighten their consciousness of regionalism and want to study regions more? Was there something special about this era? I think there was, and I think that I think it goes in two things. One is that more Americans, especially young American men from rural areas, were going to college. Uh, Dobie went to Southwestern University, which is in Georgetown. It used to be thought of as this independent small town. It's now sort of a suburb of Austin. Uh, and they picked up an experience of university life and sensibility that was influenced by, strangely enough, the Romantic poets. Uh, Dobie was an English major, and he was—he became an authority. In fact, he was on the fa English faculty, not the history faculty, at the University of Texas. And his main thing was on the Romantic poets. It was Wordsworth. It was Keats. It was Tennyson. These people who had the sensibility of the Lake District, uh, <clears throat> that whole sense of a few miles above Tintern Abbey, was something that. He said, in fact, he, he, he kept emphasizing in Texas, he said, we will only be civilized, truly civilized in Texas, when the roadrunner, the paisano, means as much to us as the nightingale. We don't have a nightingale in Texas. We've got the roadrunner. And I think that was something that people were picking up in Montana. They were picking it up. I mentioned Willa Cather before, her, her sense in Nebraska. Uh, Badger Clark in South Dakota. Uh, cowboy poet, we we know him now for the lyrics to uh, Spanish is a loving tongue, became one of the setting to music. The uh, Spanish Johnny was a poem by Willa Cather. In fact, that's just come out again. So people were picking this up through their university background. The other thing was World War One, which really was World War One. And Dobie was a soldier in World War One. Uh, he spent his time in France. He never saw any action, but he remained in France after the war was over. Studied at the University of Paris, the Sorbonne. Uh, was theoretically involved in a smuggling mission in the Pyrenees. So he picked up things that were going on in Europe at the time, after World War I, which then had a reach, what we would understand as a regionalist focus. And I think when these as Adobe was, these young men that came back from the war and that had an education before, had been to college before, and then they were either going to go to graduate school or they were going into universities, they, they just insisted on a focusing on the locale, that everything was simply not a matter of New York in the 1920s. One thing I would quickly add, it's, it's so funny, uh, the new movie, uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them has just come out, so it's the J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter franchise, and it's set in New York in the 1920s. And the film has a very good feel for New York in the 1920s, but you get these 
echoes back to sort of the lake country of England where Hogwarts is supposed to be set. And uh, you get this sense of where the American magicians are from, or are they, do they have a background in sort of Gullah culture and the, the coast of the south? Or Native American, the Wampanoags, or the Narragansetts, uh, Jewish Americans. So there's this big sense of sort of this larger American sensibility, which is just not in the streets of Manhattan in the 1920s. Paul, if uh, some of our listeners really want to dig down into this era and learn more about regionalism and not just Midwestern regionalism, which we talk a lot about on our show, but other regions of the country, uh, what, what are the key texts you would recommend? And I think in particular about Robert Dorman's work, The Revolt of the Provinces, being a great entry point for this sort of thing. I think that's a that's a very good point. I also think that, so I'm going to be talking about Dobie again, I think that Lon Tinkle's biography of Dobie, which was called An American Original, uh, which I believe was published by Little Brown, uh, is still there. Henry Nash Smith's Virgin Land, which really some would say is the, the creator, the founding document of, of the field of American studies. But one other set of books which does focus on a state, but a state much more as a region and a nation, is Kevin Starr's series of uh, In the California History. The first volume of that was called Americans in the California Dream, and the second volume was called Inventing the Dream. Uh, it basically, the series takes California from essentially European contact, uh, but then the American period, so beginning with the gold rush, to about the present, to the, at least the beginning of the 21st century. There's one thing that I would emphasize about it. In the second volume of that series, the Inventing the Dream, there's a discussion about a meeting that happens in 1906 in Levy's Cafe in Los Angeles. And it's this meeting of largely professional young men, almost, well, they were all young men, they were almost all professionals. They had been called together, a lot of them were journalists, they had been called together by an older man who was a medical doctor who had been a, a, a surgeon during the Civil War. And they had all returned from Sacramento where they had been, quote, covering the horrors of the state legislature. And Kevin makes a point, which is really significant, that the vast majority of them were born in the Midwest. They were not native Californians. They were from Wisconsin, they were from Minnesota, they were from uh, Illinois, they were from Indiana. They had this particular progressive sensibility, uh, which was very much at the center of the country at the time. They pledged themselves to this, what we would think of as a political program that would be part of the progressive era. They were for a 40-hour work week, they were for women's suffrage, they were for conservation of forests, of water, natural resources. They were uh, for education. They were for every major plank that we would think of as, as progressive era issues. They all were young men of enough means that they pledged some money for candidates from whatever party who would promise to advance this particular agenda, this legislative agenda, a good government agenda. 
and that they would not, at least in the first rounds of elections, be candidates themselves. Then, then quite significantly, they made a pledge to themselves that they would get the governor's mansion in Sacramento during the next election. So they were, they were real about it. They thought, we're going to have to, we'll not just support these policies, we're going to win. And their candidate became Hiram Johnson, who was a Democrat from San Francisco, but was not a machine politician. And in fact, in the presidential election in, in 1912, Hiram Johnson was on the Bull Moose Party ticket with T.R., who ran again. So I think that Kevin Starr's approach is so important because he focuses on this state, which becomes the biggest state in the Union. It's a state which has discrete regional identities, and in fact, significantly, so obviously we're talking about the Midwest, but when you think about the Central Valley, this big, flat, agricultural boom area, it's like a displaced Midwest in the, in the center of, of, uh, of California. So it also, and I guess I might even just going toward a conclusion, say this, that I think that when we talk about regions, that you always have to talk about a, a state as having some central importance in a region. So for the upper Midwest, that's my opinion that Minnesota has that. But then the state itself has regions in it as well. As in Minnesota, you've got the, the range, the Iron Range, you've got the cities, you've got the valley, the Red River Valley. And I think that anybody who has just driven out across, going from the Wisconsin border with Minnesota on 94 to all the way to the Montana border, just knows that when you get into the Red River Valley, you're into this different region. And it's a multi-state region. How do you think uh, places like Minnesota um, but the Midwest more generally is doing in terms of studying its own regional history. And are Midwestern universities doing a good job of studying the Midwest? I think they're doing a different job. And that's a frustration with me. I've, uh, I've been pleased in the last 12 years to have taught the Minnesota history course at the University of Minnesota. During much of that time, the only other state uh, state history that was taught in a Big Ten university was at Indiana. That was uh, James Madison teaching that. It's not clear to me at this point how much longer that's going to be taking place. I think it's it's monetary, but also I think it's just frankly it's a disposition. Uh, they don't they don't care to study uh, where we are, uh, and strangely a fourth states which even when you think about it, we've just come out of a presidential election, which totally proved that there is no national presidential election. We have 50 state presidential elections. And then some have argued, we don't even have 50 state presidential elections. They're just discrete swing state presidential elections. That's really all that matters. I think, it's, I think we could do, I'm being as diplomatic as possible, we could do much better, much, much better. And I think that that can happen through uh, a greater sense of what it means to study these locales. So the literature, we're recording this uh, on the 9th of December. Tomorrow is the Nobel Prize Award Ceremony. Robert Allen Zimmerman become Bob Dylan from Duluth, from Hibbing, 
studied a little bit and flunked out at the University of Minnesota, lived at Sigma Alpha Mu, uh, is going to get the Nobel Prize for Literature. He's not, he's not appearing. Patty Smith is apparently appearing in his stead, and, and as far as we know, she's going to read something and sing something as well. But when you think about how significant the given locale for this newest Nobel Prize laureate is to his body of work, and then you look at the first Nobel Prize laureate in literature, it's Sinclair Lewis from Salk Center. That is, that is a remarkable kind of bookending thing of the center of the country. Dylan's album, his third album, which was 1963, so it was the year of the, of the, the March on Washington, of Peter, Paul, and Mary singing his Blowing in the Wind on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, his, his album at that time, The Times They Are Changing, is, is so dark. It focuses on the Dakotas. It focuses on the Iron Range. It focuses on towns whose economies are dying. Somebody has come in from a mine company in the east and said, we're closing this shaft at a given point. The Ballad of Hollis Brown. There's X number of people dead on a South Dakota farm. This is, this is dark stuff, but it's very appreciative. And I think that an appreciation of that kind of literature, the, the beginning lines of Desolation Row, they're selling postcards of the hanging, they're painting the passports brown. The beauty parlor is filled with sailors, the circus is in town. This reference to the lynching in Duluth. You know, and it's, it's only within the last 20 years, John, that we've had sort of that recognized. And in fact, this, the Minnesota Historical Society has been key in putting up a monument for where this took place. So it's certainly not a monument to the triumph of that racism. What it is, is a recognition of the complexities of knowing a given place and what happens. We've been talking with Paul Stone of the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School, and we've been talking about some famous Minnesotans like Bob Dylan and Sinclair Lewis, uh, which Paul just mentioned. Uh, I'd like to end today by asking you about your work on another famous Minnesotan who was first a South Dakotan, came out of Dolan, South Dakota, and that is uh, Hubert Humphrey. And I think you are working on a book about uh, I Humphrey. Am. I am. I'm thinking that the book is going to be called uh, Humphrey's America, and I'm trying to shape it out of a series of conference papers and essays and things that I have been looking at. Hubert Humphrey was uh, a native of South Dakota. His mother was Norwegian. She was actually born in Norway. His father, and though he claimed he didn't know that much about his own background, was from sort of this old Yankee background, uh, the Humphrey, and apparently had some Quaker uh, ancestry. He came uh, in 1929 to the University of Minnesota. It's kind of a joke that I but I have allies, students, you know, what's the biggest city in California? They'll say Los Angeles. What's the biggest city in uh, New York? New York. And I say, what's South Dakota's biggest city? And the answer is, they would say, well, Rapid City. And I say, well, or, or Sioux City. And I, and I would say, it's really Minneapolis. Uh, but he comes to Minneapolis to go to the University of Minnesota. And he has to leave because of the Depression. He goes back and he works in his family's drugstore. But he comes back to Minneapolis in 37, graduates in 39. By 45, he's the mayor of Minneapolis. By 48, he's the first DFL US senator. 
and he's the first, in fact, person who wins statewide office from this hyphenated Democratic Farmer Labor Party. Uh, and then, as many people know, he becomes vice president, sworn in in 1965 under Lyndon Johnson. I've been fascinated with him because teaching at the Humphrey School, I think the Humphrey School could do do a better job, like a lot of schools, the, the La Follette School in, in Wisconsin, the, uh, the Kennedy School in Massachusetts. If we focus on these people that the schools were named for, the honorands, Humphrey is so significant because he represents a kind of liberal patriotism that is indigenous to America in the middle part of the century. And I have just given a paper, you were the chair of the, that session, looking at the first speech that he made in early 1966, which was for a banquet uh, honoring the 25th anniversary of the magazine Christianity in Crisis. Its editor was, editor was the Reverend Dr. Reinhold Niebuhr, who was a native of Missouri, another sort of you know, heartland figure, who was a founder, along with Humphrey, of the Americans for Democratic Action. So this was the most formidable left-wing anti-communist organization in the country. And Humphrey was making this speech uh, based on his long friendship with Niebuhr his somewhat forced support of the Vietnam War, but his sense of what an American role should be in the middle to the end of the 20th century in terms of, of the promotion of, of democracy, of human rights, of freedom. And he saw Vietnam, for right or for wrong, as a theater of, of that, ongoing, that ongoing issue. Uh, it was a comment that I've made to several people at the Northern Great Plains History Conference last year and this year as well. I said it was because, and I also made this comment to Lucy Baines Johnson, Lyndon Johnson's daughter, who I had the opportunity to spend a couple hours with last summer. And, and, and she just grew up knowing Hubert Humphrey and uh, people, the people in the the children of the people in the Senate knew each other at the time. It's unfortunate they don't know each other now. But I said, it's my view that it was because Hubert was a liberal that he supported those issues of liberalism, workers' rights, civil rights, education, housing, uh, good government, ethical behavior on the part of elected representatives, because of those that he was anti-communist, not in spite of it. And I think that's a wishy-washy kind of stuff that we're in right now, This, this kind of view of a golden age of, of leftism that's, you know, that just sort of borders on, you know, Stalin on one side and Ho Chi Minh on the other. And that's just nonsense. And I don't know how we get over it other than just calling it that kind of nonsense. And I think that's the reason that I'm so fascinated with Humphrey. So what I want to do is, is call this Humphrey's America and use document documents that come out of the Minnesota Historical Society, the Humphrey School, the OBJ Library, uh, interviews with people uh, who are still, the staffers for Humphrey are now pretty old themselves. They're all in their upper 80s and upper 90s. Uh, so it's something that I'm, I'm working on. I want to complete it in the next couple of years uh, with the idea that it may be a portal again to, to study something about America that we've, we've ceased to study. 
We've been talking with Paul Stone of the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School. We are very anxious to hear more about uh, Paul's future work, including his book on Hubert Humphrey. I'm your host of Heartland History, John Lauk. Our producer of this broadcast is Dana Brown. Please join us again, and thanks to Paul for joining us today. Thank you, John. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.